Hello, welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. And an extra special welcome to those returning to Season 3. This is a shorter series of only four episodes, covering only five years, but you will see why. The first five years of the independent Congo are not for the faint-hearted. Here we see global intrigue and old grudges come to the fore. I have tried to cover these as best as I can in sequence. As ever, leave your reviews and emails. This season is sure to have an impact. So here we go, Season 3, Episode 1. Independence Day, 30th of June 1960. Independence, at last! The people are excited, and they have made their choice as to the new leaders. The musical hit is the Independence Chacha, and everybody is ready for a bold new future. The nationalist and dynamic leader Patrice Lumumba has been elected head of the coalition cabinet as Prime Minister, and Kasafubu of the Pakongo is the official head of state as president. Both were supported by votes in the new parliamentary houses, and the business of running the country was to start. It was a time to look forward, and the Belgian king, King Badouin, had flown in to mark the official ceremony. For once, the Belgians and the Congolese were united. The king travelled to the ceremony in an open-top limousine. He had done so five years prior and was familiar with the joyous crowds which lined the magnificent modern city of Leopoldville. He must have looked forward to the celebratory atmosphere, although this being his last such parade in the Congo, this journey was a little unusual. He was driven at a slow pace for everybody to join in with the festivities, but this was also an invitation to the more unhinged. As he was chauffeured along, suddenly a man leapt from the crowd, There was no malice in this, he was just exuberant. He grabbed the king's ceremonial sword to use as a partner in a kind of dance, but it was awkward and a little embarrassing. Most of the people looked on this with alarm. He was still the king and this was disrespectful, but the uncomfortableness of the king before security managed to remove the man was plain to see. The times were certainly changing. After this, the procession continued. The ceremony was to be held in the Palais de la Nation, a magnificent palace on the banks of the River Congo, in the Gombe district, home to many salubrious foreign embassies today. As president and official head of state, President Kasavubu was to address the foreign dignitaries and the newly appointed members of parliament. He was also the last to enter the chamber, alongside King Badouin, and was afforded the respect of the audience as they stood waiting for him and the king to sit down. Truly a stately occasion, with all the trappings of sombre pomp and circumstance. King Badouin's opening speech was somewhat tactless given the history we have seen. He extolled the genius of King Leopold, and praised the Belgians for all that they had achieved in the Congo. But it also ended with an eye to friendship in the future. Despite the economic machinations that we saw at the February round table, his closing remarks were... Do not hesitate to turn to us if needed, or seek our counsel. I think that many of the traditional power brokers in Belgium truly believed that there was a fruitful relationship ahead. Then the king sat down. This was it. Joseph Kasongo, the president of the Chamber of Deputies, declared, Ladies and gentlemen, you have just heard the speech given by His Majesty, the King of Belgium. 
From this moment on, Congo is independent. There was rapturous applause. Foreign dignitaries and the Congolese deputies and senators enthusiastically embraced the speeches. Kasavubu followed up with the only official Congolese reply on the programme, a polite and unremarkable speech thanking the king and giving his best wishes. Lest we forget, Kasavubu was the man who had led the Bukongo party of Abaco as the main driving force behind independence at the beginnings of the movement. He had earned his place. Formerly, he was as forthright in his demands as anyone, but his speech was more diplomatic today, as the new world was beginning. But in the chamber sat another who had not yet spoken. Although not on the official programme of events, he had agreed with Kasongo that as Prime Minister, he would be heard. He sat visibly seething at the King's speech, and as the opportunity of silence presented itself, with the eyes of the Congolese, fellow Africans, and the world on him, Patrice Lumumba stood up. He had something to say. Men and women of the Congo, victorious independence fighters, I salute you in the name of the Congolese government. I ask all of you, my friends, who tirelessly fought in our ranks, to mark this June 30th, 1960, as an illustrious date that will be ever engraved in your hearts. A date whose meaning you will proudly explain to your children, so that they in turn might relate to their grandchildren and great-grandchildren the glorious history of our struggle for freedom. Although this independence of the Congo is being proclaimed today by agreement with Belgium, an amicable country, with which we are on equal terms, no Congolese will ever forget that independence was won in struggle, a persevering and inspired struggle carried on from day to day, a struggle in which we were undaunted by privation or suffering and stinted neither strength nor blood. It was filled with tears, fire and blood. We are deeply proud of our struggle because it was just and noble and indispensable in putting an end to the humiliating bondage forced upon us. That was our lot for the 80 years of colonial rule, and our wounds are too fresh and much too painful to be forgotten. We have experienced forced labour in exchange for pay that did not allow us to satisfy our hunger, to clothe ourselves, to have decent lodgings, or to bring up our children as dearly loved ones. Morning, noon and night we were subjected to jeers, insults and blows, because we were Congolese. Who will ever forget that we were addressed as two, not because he was a friend, but because the polite vu was reserved for the Europeans. We have seen our land seized in the name of ostensibly just laws, which gave recognition only to the right of might. We have not forgotten that the law was never the same for them and us, that it was lenient to one and cruel and inhumane to the others. We have experienced the atrocious sufferings, being persecuted for political convictions and religious beliefs, and exiled from our native land. Our lot was worse than death itself. We have not forgotten that in the cities the mansions were for the Europeans and the tumble-down huts for the Congolese. That we were not admitted to the cinemas, restaurants and shops set aside for Europeans. That we travelled in the holes, under the feet of the Belgians in their luxury cabins. Who will ever forget the shootings which killed so many of our brothers, all the cells into which they were mercilessly thrown? 
those who no longer wish to submit to the regime of injustice, oppression and exploitation used by the colonialists as a tool of their domination. All that, my brothers, brought us untold suffering. But we, who were elected by the votes of your representatives, representatives of the people to guide our native land, we, who have suffered in body and soul from the colonial oppression, will tell you henceforth all that is finished with. The Republic of the Congo has been proclaimed, and our beloved country's future is now in the hands of its people. Brothers, let us commence together a new struggle, a sublime struggle that will lead our country to peace, prosperity and greatness. Together we shall establish social justice and ensure for every man a fair remuneration for his labour. We shall show the world what the Congolese can do when working in liberty, and we shall make the Congo the pride of Africa. We shall see to it that the lands of our native country truly benefit its children. We shall revise all the old laws and make them into new ones that will be just and noble. We shall stop the persecution of free thought. We shall see to it that all citizens enjoy to the fullest extent the basic freedoms provided for by the Declaration of Human Rights. We shall eradicate all discrimination, whatever its origin, and we shall ensure for everyone a station in life befitting its human dignity and worthy of his labour and his loyalty to the country. We shall institute in the country a peace resting not on guns and bayonets, but on concord and goodwill. And in all this, my dear compatriots, we can rely not only on our own enormous forces and immense wealth, but also on the assistance of the numerous foreign states, whose cooperation we shall accept when it is not aimed at imposing upon us an alien policy, but is given in a spirit of friendship. Even Belgium, which has finally learned the lesson of history and need no longer try to oppose our independence, is prepared to give us its aid and friendship. For that end, an agreement has been just been signed between our two equal independent countries. I am sure that this cooperation will benefit both countries. For our part, we shall, while remaining vigilant, try to observe the engagements we have freely made. Thus, both in the internal and external spheres, the new Congo being created by my government will be rich, free and prosperous. But to attain our goal without delay, I ask all of you, legislators and citizens of the Congo, to give us all the help you can. I ask you to sink your tribal quarrels. They weaken us and may cause us to be despised abroad. I ask you all not to shrink from any sacrifice for the sake of ensuring the success of our grand undertaking. Finally, I ask you unconditionally to respect the life and property of fellow citizens and foreigners who have settled in our country. If the conduit of these foreigners leaves much to be desired, our justice will promptly expel them from the territory of the public. If, on the contrary, their conduct is good, they must be left in peace, for they, too, are working for our country's prosperity. The Congo's independence is a decisive step forward towards the liberation of the whole African continent. Our government, a government of national and popular unity, will serve its country. I call on all Congolese citizens, men, women and children, to set themselves resolutely to the task of creating a national economy and ensuring our economic independence. Eternal glory to the fighters for national liberation 
Long live independence and African unity. Long live the independent and sovereign Congo. Now there's a speech, if I ever heard one. I think that King Alfonso, writing all those years ago on behalf of the Kingdom of the Congo, would have recognised some of the rage, frustration, and most importantly hope in these words. But in 1960, the main people listening were the Belgians and the international community. This was unusually polemic rhetoric for this type of occasion. It was in line with the populist campaigns we have seen, but that struggle was now over. It was time to look at the future. Concern was raised in Belgium and beyond. Videos of the event show stony Belgian faces and shocked Congolese amongst the audience, although there was tremendous applause at the end provided by some. Although there was tremendous applause at the end provided by some. But outside of Parliament, there were different reactions. In the Bakongo province, where the capital sat, they still admired their representative Kasavubu for his diplomacy and saw Lumumba's speech as inflammatory. At the other end of the country, in Katanga, they barely noticed. They voted for Tshombe anyway. And Leopoldville was far, far away. Lumumba had taken the opportunity to voice the rage of generations. But independence had been won. The voice of rage served little purpose now. But after the ceremonies, there were celebrations. Everybody loves a party. Dignitaries watched as the force public gave parades around the country and with music and plenty of drinking, good times were had by almost everyone. But these hedonistic days could not last. After a few days, the new leaders settled down to running the country. Faced with the removal of the former administrative class, decolonialisation, the need to unify the nation and the requirement to set a unified agenda after the fractious campaigns they started in earnest. They knew there was much to do and they faced the day with courage. With such odds, it was promising to see that they achieved unanimity very soon in their first directive, which was to give themselves a five-fold pay rise. Traditionally, at this point, Congo histories point to the lack of educated Congolese. And this was true. At the date of independence, not a single Congolese lawyer, doctor or judge was trained to a European equivalence. There were zero high-ranking civil servants, only 24 assistant managers and 726 clerks in a country the size of Western Europe. But these facts provide little excuse for the blatant taking advantage of power. Unbelievably, in the face of all the challenges for a new desperate country, Parliament's first act was to increase their pay from 100,000 francs a year to 500,000 francs. In all transparency, Lumumba voted against this, but he was outnumbered. All government employees were also to enjoy a pay rise, and many were promoted to fill the managerial and senior positions previously held by the Belgians, with no thought to training. In reality, the politicians and the civil servants set about improving their conditions. This revealed an enormous lack of awareness in the precariousness of the country. The new Congolese leaders had no thoughts to the maintenance of the existing structure, already fragile in the wake of independence movements of the last few years. Perhaps convinced by their own propaganda, they imagined that they would simply replace the previous colonial authorities, living a life of power and decisions. But the reality was far from this. Running any organisation requires diligence, thought and attention 
or it will become unstable. It is much easier to break an organisation than improve it. They did not consider that the country that they were to be in charge of was literally brand new, and being a collection of disparate ethnic identities needed delicate stewardship. Time and time again, history has shown that the first three priorities for any leader of a precarious state are 1. the support of the army, 2. the support of the army, and 3. the support of the army. During all of the celebrations, the force public did indeed pay their part. They were looking forward to independence as much as the rest of the Congolese, and so they paraded and trooped as requested, with a new set of politicians looking on them at their new power. But for the troops themselves, little had changed. Such disappointing reality was fuelled by an increasing realisation of injustice. They knew of the wealth grab of the new government, and looked on with resentment and increasing anger. For the vast majority of troops, there was to be no increase in their promotion prospects. If there was any ambiguity, this was explicitly told to them by the General's words on a blackboard. Before independence equals after independence. And this was written by the same Belgian General, General Janssens, who was in charge before. This didn't go down at all well. The troops didn't want any continuation of their colonial masters. In their minds, as promised by the pre-election rhetoric of all of the parties, the colonial time was over. The soldiers were Congolese too, and they had just as much right to be free as anyone else. Their fury boiled over. On the 5th of July, just four days after the Declaration of Independence, soldiers in Camp Leopold II, the military base of the capital no less, mutinied. They demanded the resignation of said General Janssens immediately, as well as the removal of any Belgian officers who had remained to advise the politicians and the replacement of any other white officers. The mutineers seized weapons, equipment and most importantly the telephone exchange and radio equipment. They shared their frustrations and events and the news was met with understanding by their comrades. Dissent quickly spread throughout the military bases in Leopoldville in the centre, the two Katangan bases in the southeast, and Goma on the eastern border with Rwanda. Soon civilian groups, perhaps also buoyed by the expectations created by the nonsense electoral campaigns, joined in. Frustrations manifested themselves as rampages in city centres. Leopoldville Airport became cut off. People desperately escaped across the river to Brazzaville, but this escape route too was soon stopped by gangs. Panic erupted throughout the Belgians and non-Congolese, who had suddenly become legitimate targets in the eyes of the aggrieved. Expectations were high, and reparations were in order. Someone had to pay. Men were beaten, and there were reports of women being assaulted in Banzaboma, Matimba and Matadi. Once started, the maelstrom showed no signs of stopping. On the 6th of July, soldiers in Nsiki, about 130 kilometres west of Leopoldville, on the way to the Atlantic, attacked the Belgian population. 20 women were sexually assaulted. Lumumba dashed to meet them trying his best to understand their concerns and stop the breakdown. He met a delegation of soldiers who expressed that they were protesting against Belgian officers and some of our rulers, according to their demands given to a journalist. Quickly, the new politicians were seen with the same disdain as the old colonial rulers. Kasavubu and Lumumba worked together. Neither of them had seen this coming. They travelled to Camp Lisson in the capital where the original mutiny had occurred. 
There was a temporary calm, but as night fell, the rioting started again. Once again, any Belgians were the target of rage, with alcohol fueling the combined sense of rage and pure opportunism. On the 7th of July, now only one week after independence, Lumumba gave a press conference, stating that no raping or looting had occurred. But this was at odds with reality. Even as he spoke, the train from Teesville rolled in with passengers of beaten men and abused women. In just seven days, state control and social harmony had all but broken down. The fractious events prior to independence had not gone with Congolese rule. They had just been added to. A new conflict had arisen as the army refused to accept no change in conditions and prospects. Europeans were now very much exposed to the rage flowing through certain areas. I cannot help but think here to the hereditary chiefs who did not want a rapid end to Belgian control, as they saw opportunism and disorder. Perhaps they were the wisest of all. But as we know, their voices were crowded out by the ambitious new politicians and the machinations of the Belgian economic interests. Whilst this was happening throughout the country, there was one place, though, which was still largely functioning. Katanga was enjoying relative peace, but its provincial leader and member of the Lunda royal family, Moise Tsjombe, was extremely concerned. So much so that he asked Belgium and neighbouring Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, to send in troops as a peacekeeping force. They refused, but it is revealing that so soon after independence, Katanga was already seeking outside help. It wanted to be removed from the violence elsewhere. Lest we forget, Katanga was the wealthiest area by the, of the country by far and housed a far greater proportion of Europeans and other expats than anywhere else. Something had to be done. On Friday the 8th of July, Lumumba acted on the concerns of the force public soldiers. General Janssen's was dismissed and the 1,000 or so European officers and NCOs were fired immediately replaced with newly promoted Congolese. Their rise was truly meteoric. Former Sergeant Major and Lumumba supporter Victor Lundula was appointed as General with overall responsibility. Joseph Mobutu, the same Mobutu who had expressed dismay as a journalist at the independence negotiations in Belgium, was promoted from former Sergeant to Colonel and Chief of Staff. New officers were also promoted from the ranks mostly by seniority of service as NCOs, but also on occasion by a ballot from the men. In the words of one officer in the South African army, none of these men had the military skills needed to hold any soldier to account for breaking the military code. Officership, leadership, tactics and strategic insight all took years to learn, and these were wholly absent from the new leadership. The structure was fragile, to say the least. In addition to this restructuring, the force public was renamed the Armée Nationale Congolaise, or the ANC for short. Promises were made of salary increases and promotions, and of course the blame for the uprisings was firmly placed on the shoulders of the redundant Belgian officers. But while this reorganisation did help, Belgians in the Congo were in flight. As we have seen, people used the river route to Brazzaville whilst it was still open, but others fled to Angola, Kenya or Rhodesia, literally using planes, trains or automobiles. Belgium did not stand idly by, and Sabina, its national airline, had its entire long-haul fleet of five Boeing 707s commandeered to airlift people out of the country. Thousands of Europeans were leaving. As they arrived at places of safety, they told their stories. One man, who had left the Oriental province, told a journalist, 
I liked the Congolese. I naively thought they liked us as well. My wife has been raped more than 30 times. She has been insane for three days. What else do you want me to say? Sandy Gall, a respected British journalist, recounts how he was told firsthand by a group of fleeing nuns how they were attacked. When challenged of the truth of this, they said it happened to them, including one of their elderly sisters. The world and Belgium was aghast. In this context, the newly formed ANC took over the capital's airport on the 9th of July. This stopped all flights out of the country and prevented any continuation of the airlift. Belgium had been requesting to Lumumba to allow them to help stabilise the country militarily, but these pleas were refused. But public opinion in Belgium was now at boiling point. Belgium wanted to leave, as we have seen, but they could not see people treated like this. Lest we forget, in the midst of such horror, Lumumba and Kasavubo had managed to free European hostages, and they were still trying hard to achieve peace. But time had run out. Belgium was starting to mobilise. Only one week after independence, Congolese order and society was collapsing. To top it all, the Belgian military was coming back. With so much going on, it's difficult to find a natural break in the history. But find one, we will. So in the middle of all this, we will take a pause. We will see what happened next, in our next episode. So until then, and as ever, safe travels. <laughs>